In January 1956, a man called Jim Elliott was killed in the jungle of Ecuador. He had gone to Ecuador not to make money for himself and not to gain a reputation for himself. He went to tell the Auca Indians about Jesus. And he had barely begun to do that when he and four friends were killed by Auca Spears. Jim Elliott was 29 years old when he was killed. And we might hear that and think, what a waste. But that's not what Jim Elliott thought. A few years before, he had written this in his journal. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That's a clever way to put it. And it's true. But that is not a truth which originated with Jim Elliot. It's a truth that comes from the New Testament. It's a truth that's at the heart of our passage this morning. This morning we're going to look at the book of Acts, chapter 5, and we're going to pick up in verse 12 of Acts, chapter 5. If you're using a church Bible, that's page 1097. Acts chapter 5, verse 12, reading down to the end of chapter 5. The apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by evil spirits, and all of them were healed." Then the high priest and all his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go, stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people the full message of this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts and, as they had been told, began to preach to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported, we find the jail securely locked, with the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we find no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were puzzled, wondering what would come of this. Then someone came and said, Look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. Having brought the apostles, they made them appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us 
guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than man. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the people who was honored by a teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed them, men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Theudas appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, all his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. This is God's word. The opening words of our passage are very positive. Verse 12 tells us the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people. And all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. That's a part of the temple. Luke is telling us that God is at work in powerful ways. But remember what's gone before this. Two weeks ago, we saw Peter and John arrested for healing a crippled man and then preaching about Jesus. And last week, we saw two people in the church fall down dead for defying God. And those two incidents probably account for what we read in verse 13. After telling us God was working powerfully through the apostles and that all the believers were meeting together publicly, Luke says no one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Who is Luke talking about when he says no one else dared join them? In verse 12, he's told us all the believers met together. So we might think that no one else is referring to unbelievers. But then we read in verse 14, Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. The believers are meeting together 
and more and more unbelievers are becoming believers. So who are the people who don't dare to join in? Well, at the very least, they're people who are interested in the message about Jesus. And they may even be a stage beyond that. They may believe the message about Jesus is true, but they don't dare to join the believers. They won't jump in with both feet. Someone has called them non-joining sympathizers. They seem to see the truth and they want in, but they're hesitating. And we've seen a couple of reasons why they might hesitate. They've heard about Ananias and Sapphira. And they know about Peter and John getting arrested. They realize that going all in with the believers is a serious commitment. Maybe for some of them, there's a sin that they want to hold on to. Maybe others are worried about their reputation or their comfort. Either way, what we see here is hesitancy in the midst of God's work. And maybe verse 13 describes you. It could be that you like what you hear about Jesus. It makes sense. It rings true. But you're hesitating to go all in. And up to a point, that's not a bad thing. Following Jesus is a serious commitment. We do need to count the cost of following him. Jesus told us to do that. Now, the cost for us may not be the same as it was for Jim Elliot or for Ahmed, who we saw in the video. But even so, today in England, being a Christian is not exactly the trendy thing. Very soon it might not even be seen as the respectable thing anymore. So making a public commitment to Jesus can be daunting. It probably feels like a step into the unknown. It can be scary. It's good to count the cost of following Jesus. But we mustn't stop there. We mustn't miss out on true life because of fear. Commit yourself to Jesus. And whatever the cost might be, it will be nothing compared to what you gain. He or she is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Here in Acts, we're told that many did take the step of believing and joining with the other believers. They went public with their faith. And as that was happening, God's power was at work in impressive ways. Verses 15 and 16 tell us about many people being healed. It's worth noticing, though, that Peter and the other apostles never present themselves as healers. They never hold healing meetings. Their main concern is to tell the truth about Jesus. In fact, we get the impression here that many were healed without Peter paying them any particular attention. They get healed as he passes by in the street. Peter is focused on sharing the message. 
And God is using the healings to gain a hearing for the message. And all of this very predictably annoys the authorities in Jerusalem. Verse 17. Then the high priest and all his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. Back in chapter 4, the apostles were warned not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. In fact, the text says they were commanded and threatened. The message was, we'll let you off this time, but next time, watch out. The apostles have ignored the leader's commands and threats. And now the leaders are going to show them who's in charge. Verse 19. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go, stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people the full message of this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts, as they had been told, and began to teach the people. Here we see courage in the midst of God's work. God shows that he's actually the one in charge. The leaders can lock these men up, but God wants them in the temple courts preaching. And what God wants, he gets. Always. There are no degrees of difficulty for God. There are no situations that are harder for him to solve than others. God can use humans to see that his will is done. He can use nature. And he has angels on hand too. Now the rest of Acts will show that release from prison is not always going to happen for God's people. Paul spends years in jail. There was no miraculous opening of doors for him. So this is not what God is always going to do. But here, he delivers the apostles to show these proud leaders who has the real power. And we can imagine the surprise of the crowds here. They've watched the apostles being publicly arrested and dragged off to prison. And then, just a few hours later, they're back in the same spot, preaching the same message. The message of new life that's found by trusting in Jesus. God is at work here. And it's also true that these apostles are showing real courage. They know how angry the leaders are. They know what that might mean. If the angel had let you or me out of prison, we would probably have headed for the hills. But the apostles go back, and they carry on where they'd left off. We've heard about those who didn't dare to publicly identify with Jesus. So what gives the apostles their courage? How is it that they dare when others don't dare? Well, the rest of our passage shows us the key to courage, getting the right perspective. To their great embarrassment, the leaders find out that their prisoners aren't in prison. They have them re-arrested, 
And verse 27 says, having brought the apostles, they made them appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Notice the leaders don't even mention the escape from prison. The last time the apostles stood before them, the leaders couldn't deny God's work of healing the crippled man. But they still wanted to shut the apostles up. Their only concern was to protect their own power. And here again, we might think the leaders would think twice about how the apostles got out of jail. But no, they're just hopping mad that their orders have been disobeyed. And they're mad that the apostles are making them look bad. They say, you're determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. In other words, you're suggesting we were the ones who put Jesus to death. Which, of course, is exactly what they did. This council is missing out on life because of their own high opinion of themselves. When they're confronted with evidence of God's power and with the truth about their own guilt, what do they do? They get angry. And they scramble to protect their little piece of power. It's pathetic. And it's tragic. Even in human terms, these leaders are small fry. The Romans might give them a long leash, but Rome is in charge of Jerusalem. Even in human terms, the power of the Jewish council is severely limited. And in the face of God's power, it's nothing. But instead of getting the right perspective and getting right with God, these men fight their corner. And what they're doing is something that's repeated endlessly in this world. Men and women go around with delusions of their own grandeur. We're very impressed with our own goodness. How dare God tell us we need to repent? And we're very convinced about our own power. We're not going to give way to God. We're not going to bow to His authority. It's pathetic. If we could see ourselves as we really are, we'd realize that we're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. That's how the Bible describes us. And as we stand before God, that's what we are. No matter what we own, no matter how many people might report to us, we are not as strong as we think we are. We need a Savior. These leaders have the wrong perspective. And as a result, they're being stupid. Earlier, we saw people with an equally wrong perspective. Out of fear, they didn't dare to join the apostles. The leaders are wrong to think they're powerful. And those men and women are wrong to fear the leaders who think they're powerful. But Peter and the other apostles have the right perspective. 
and it makes them courageous. Verse 29, Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than men. The apostles have come face to face with the reality and power of God. How could they be afraid of any lesser power? Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German Christian who lived during the Nazi regime in the last century. He was executed by the Nazis for resisting Hitler's power. And he explained his courage like this. He said, those who are still afraid of man have no fear of God. And those who have fear of God have ceased to be afraid of man. That's the perspective these apostles had. And as we noticed last week, for the Christian, the fear of God is not a cowering fear. It's a healthy fear. It shows us that when we have to choose between obeying God or human authorities, the only option is God. And there's a very simple reason for that. God is the winner. Look what Peter says in verse 30. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Human authorities did their worst to Jesus. They not only killed him, they killed him in disgrace and humiliation. They crucified him naked on a hilltop for everyone to see. And in those hours, human and satanic powers joined forces, and they did their very worst. But, Peter says, God raised Jesus. God exalted Jesus. God gave him authority and power. The one this world tried to crush is the one it now has to answer to. God is the winner. No one wants to be on the losing side. That's true when we support a football team, for example. And when it comes to things that are actually significant, it's doubly true that we want to be on the winning side. All of us want our lives to count for something. We don't want our 70 or 80 or 85 or 90 years to be wasted. We don't want them to be futile. The trouble is we have trouble with our perspective. And one of the reasons for that is that every day we're bombarded with the message that material things are truly significant. Steve Jobs was a very ambitious man. And he said that his ambition was to leave a ding in the universe. In other words, he wanted to make his mark in a big way and be significant. And that is a good thing. Trouble is, his perspective was all wrong. 
He tried to make his ding in the universe by producing little gadgets. And however enjoyable and useful those gadgets are, they're still just pieces of metal and plastic. Certainly they're big news today. But 10 million years into eternity, who's going to care? I don't think the ding is going to last anywhere close to that long. The trouble is, many of us fall into the same faulty perspective. We think material stuff is going to help us win in this life. And we make our decisions accordingly. We spend our lives chasing material stuff. But not all of us are into stuff. Some of us think human recognition is going to help us win. We think that being liked and accepted by our peers is a truly significant thing. And so we live to please people. We try to fit in with what's cool and what's well thought of and what everyone else seems to be doing. We try to associate with the right people. The trouble is the goalposts are always shifting for us. Just before details started leaking out about Jimmy Savile, there was an auction of some of his belongings just a few weeks ago. And someone at that auction paid £130,000 for Jimmy Savile's Rolls Royce. That would impress the neighbors, wouldn't it? But what is that car worth today? Just two weeks later, maybe a couple of hundred at the scrapyard. Trying to impress people and get in with the right people is a constantly frustrating way to live. And even if we manage to die with a big reputation, that reputation can be destroyed at a stroke. Does anyone know who this is? Shout it out if you know. Captain Scott, Scott, right. Captain Robert Scott. For some years, actually for quite a few years, Robert Scott was a great British hero. He was the man who fought heroically to the South Pole and died courageously on the return journey from the Pole. But in recent decades, his reputation has been destroyed. It's been destroyed by one biographer who has portrayed Scott as a fool, a man who didn't have a clue what he was doing and who dragged others down with him. That biographer never met Scott, but he's ruined his reputation, at least in the eyes of many people. And Scott's not around to defend himself. Human recognition and applause is a very insecure thing. We need to get our perspective right. Material stuff and human reputation are not going to make us winners. God is the winner. 
we get on the winning side by giving our allegiance to him. Even if that costs us everything else. The apostles have the right perspective. And so they're willing to lose everything for God's sake. And let's be clear, the apostles aren't taking a shot in the dark by siding with God. They're not gambling. God has shown his power. When human and satanic powers did their worst at the cross, God triumphed over them by the cross. It's not just that he opposed them. What he did was even greater than that. He took their evil work and he turned it into saving work. He took the evil of Jesus' unjust death and he used it to open up the way to life. Because Jesus was punished unjustly, you and I can escape our just punishment. Even in the evil of the cross, God is the winner. So the apostles aren't taking a gamble here. They've figured it out. If God won at the cross, even at the cross, then he cannot lose. No power of hell and no scheme of man can overcome him. So then, with this perspective, the apostles can say, we must obey God rather than man. We'd be fools to do anything else. Who wants to be on the losing side? Not us. So we'll take the short-term loss. We'll take the scoffing and the rejection. We'll even take the pain and the persecution because ultimately we want to win. Peter's response makes these leaders murderously angry. Verse 33 says, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But at this point, one of the leaders speaks up, a man called Gamaliel. And his basic argument is, don't be hasty in dealing with these men. Don't do anything drastic here. Time will tell what's really going on. Gamaliel reminds the council of two previous movements that had sprung up. One around a man called Theudas, and another around a man called Judas the Galilean. Both those men had come along before Jesus. Both of them had gained a following for themselves. Both of them were killed, and in both cases, the movement they started just withered away. It came to nothing. And Gamaliel's point is, maybe this Jesus movement will be the same. Jesus died, and yes, his followers seem to be going strong. They seem utterly convinced that he isn't dead anymore. But let's wait and see. Why waste our energy fighting what might be already on its way out? On the other hand, he says, if this thing turns out to be genuine, we wouldn't want to have been fighting against God, would we? In verse 38, he says, Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. 
For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. It's hard to know where exactly Gamaliel stands. So far, he's been allying himself with the rest of the leaders. But he at least has the wisdom to know that if this movement is human, then he doesn't need to worry about it. But if it lasts, then he'd better be on the right side. And what happens next shows us that, yes, the apostles are on the winning side, but they still have to suffer. Look at verse 40. His speech persuaded them. That's the Jewish council. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. Suffering for Jesus' sake is a reassuring honor. When we're told in verse 40 that Gamaliel's speech persuaded the council, we might think the apostles are going to be let go, and they are. But not until they've literally been beaten to within an inch of their life. I don't know what picture the word flogging brings to mind for you, but let me tell you what it actually involved. The victim was whipped on both the back and the chest with a three-stranded leather strap. And in this case, the number of lashes given with the strap would probably have been 39. Old Testament law set the limit at 40 lashes. So the Jews would stop at 39, just in case they lost count and ended up going over 40. And when that beating was over, the person would be left close to death from loss of blood if not actually dead. So Gamaliel's speech hasn't exactly caused the council to go easy on the apostles. And yet, look again at their response in verse 41. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. The name here means the name of Jesus. That's made clear in verse 40. The battered apostles are ordered not to speak in the name of Jesus. But how can we make sense of their response? Why are they rejoicing? Well, the answer we're given is because they had been counted worthy of suffering for Jesus. Why are they excited about this? The reason for their excitement is something Jesus said to them while he was with them. John chapter 15 records these words of Jesus. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. 
Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Why do the apostles rejoice in their suffering? Because it means they're in. If they had any remaining inkling of doubt, that flogging has just got rid of it. As they drag themselves out of the building, they know they belong to Jesus. They have been chosen out of the world. That's why the world hates them, just like it hated their master. They're in. They're in with Jesus. They're on the winning side. And so despite the pain and the humiliation, they feel honored and reassured, and they rejoice. And verse 42 says, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. This is not an easy thing for us to hear. If this teaching was some bright idea coming from me, it would be impossible for us to hear. I haven't suffered for the name. How could I make pronouncements about this? But this teaching doesn't come from me. It comes from men who have broken skin and broken bones for Jesus' sake. And they rejoice. Not because they're supermen, but because they have the right perspective. And so people like Ahmed in the video can open their New Testament and they can find the right perspective on their suffering. And when you and I suffer in lesser ways, when we're marginalized or excluded or made fun of for following Jesus, we can rejoice too. In a small way, we have been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for him. We're on the winning side. Suffering for Jesus' sake is a reassuring honor. When you and I have the right perspective, when we let God's word give us the right perspective, then we'll find the courage to serve God and stay faithful to God, whatever it costs us. We are wise when we're willing to give up what we cannot keep to gain what we cannot lose. We're going to close our time together by renewing our perspective. We have a glorious Savior. He's worthy of our worship. And one day we will live with him in his glory. We're going to fix our eyes on these truths as we sing glorious Christ and then there is a day.